This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One week remains between those of you tuned into this podcast and people reporting to their professional jobs playing baseball at various locales in the Sunshine State and the Grand Canyon State. Is that right? Florida, the sunshine? Yeah, Florida. Yes. Sunshine. I was just I was distracted for a second because I just remember the line from old school where um, Luke Wilson says, uh, California, the sunshine state. Isn't that what he <laughs> called California? I don't know. Something. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, old school was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. Really? Yeah. And I, I think I was too embarrassed <laughs> that I was actually getting away with watching that movie that I remember most of its lines. So. Just making 15-year-old movie jokes and... It was, it was Sam's first already. Topical humor. Topical humor here on the Minor League Baseball Podcast, as it always is. And uh, hey, hi, everybody. Welcome in. It is this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. I am Tyler Mon, and he is Sam Dykstra, and we're recording this on February 8th, which means less than a week from now, there will be a whole lot of work going on in Florida and Arizona as pitchers and catchers are already reporting and are set to uh, have their mandatory report days next week, which will be followed by pitchers and catchers workouts and then first full squad workouts coming up a little bit later on in the month. And the first games of spring training get started later on this month, like the 26th of February, I think is, is the first, uh, first couple of days. I mean, this that is, right. we're so close. We're so close. This is episode number 96, by the way. And hi and welcome. Hi, Sam. Hi. Yeah. Is there anything that's like more optimistic? No. In, in terms of a three word phrase no. than pitchers and catchers? No. Cause like you don't even, it's not even a sentence that you need to like, complete. no, no, it's no, not no. Pitchers and exactly. catchers report. Like we don't talk about pitchers and catchers during the regular season. In terms of groups, we only talk about them in that group now. Yeah, uh, at least that phrase. So it's just that it feels so good in the mouth. It's got that good like mouth feel to it for a phrase. It just it, it's so optimistic. I, I think that in opening day, like makes me feel sunnier than any other phrase in the English language. Um, so yeah, the fact that we're we're getting that right now is a lot of fun. And one thing I've kind of noticed, I don't know if this is like league wide or just, you know, the people I've talked to, it seems like a lot more guys are reporting early than have in years past. Yeah. I know it, it's typically a thing for major league guys to show up a little early and that kind of thing. But I've talked to a lot of minor leaguers who are saying I'm already down here, uh, you know, or, or we, the Yankees had like captain's camp. So I know James Caprillion did that last year. There were a couple other guys, justice Sheffield talked about that last week on the podcast. Um, so it seems like, as as much as we like to think is pitchers and catchers day is the day everybody just kind of rolls in, uh, that's getting pushed further and further up. It really is the best. It's the you know, and it brings you out of like the doldrums of winter, and it just makes you feel like things are going to be okay. So that's that's happy. That's happy thoughts. It's good. It's a good thing. 
there. <laughs> We're talking about something that'll come up later on in the podcast, but there, there was a calm and soothing voice that you'll hear two segments from now, a full discussion of. Uh, but this episode is uh, episode number 96 of the Show Before the Show podcast, and wherever you found us, we thank you for tuning in. You can find this show at MILB.com slash podcast. That's where we have all of our past episodes. You can also find those on iTunes and the Stitcher app as well as uh, pretty much everywhere else you can find podcasts, and you can rate and review and subscribe to us there. And we will kick off this week's edition of the show the way we do every other week, with three strikes as we get things started for the final real full week of the offseason. And in that, we'll look toward the season season. Strike one, Sam. One prospect on your mind who is not right now in the discussion of upper echelon guys on Major League farm systems but could be on a major league roster to start 2017 give me your thoughts yeah so i didn't want to do the when i kind of put this question together and send it to you tyler i didn't want to do it in terms of you know the guys are on the 40 man they're automatically invited you know we we've talked so much on the site about guys who get non-roster invites uh those kind of things uh, and every year there's a guy or two that kind of surprises you. I remember Jackie Bradley Jr. did this probably a little bit before his time with the Red Sox a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, it worked out OK. He's, he's a really good center fielder now. But at the time, he had a really good spring and everybody thought began to think maybe he's ready now. They pushed him despite being a non-roster guy. So that's that's kind of who we're talking about here. Uh, and, and my pick I, I don't want to call him under the radar. He was a first-round pick last year. He's the 26th overall pick by the Chicago White Sox. Uh, but Zach Birdie, you know, we, we so much has happened this offseason with the White Sox farm system, notably adding, you know, massive names like Yohan Mankata, uh Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, Michael Kopech. Uh, you know, Alex Kraft, our colleague, did a story this week uh, about what the White Sox have added in terms of arms. And I think going even before that, Birdie, you know, they took him so high last year coming out of Louisville, uh, college arm. He's always going to be a reliever. There's no doubt about that. You might know his brother, Nick, who's in the twin system. Uh, both of them throw really, really hard. Uh, Zach, you know, can hit triple digits when he wants. It's usually talk. We're talking about high 90s, but he's got that velocity. Uh, he's got a really good slider and above average changeup. Already has that package of pitches. Uh, and the White Sox did not hold him back last year. I mean, he pitched in the AZL, the Carolina League, the Southern League, and the AAA International League, where he ended his year. Uh, he got 38 innings under his belt, which doesn't sound like a lot, but even for a college arm, that's a pretty good amount for a reliever. Uh, so they're not exactly worried about pushing him too hard. He's probably going to start, you know, if I was a betting man, I'm not telling you he's definitely going to be with the White Sox on day one. Uh, but he has the stuff right now to the point where I think he could compete at a major league level. I think the White Sox believe that as well. Uh, he got a non-roster invite, so, uh, you know, he's not going to be put on the 40-man already. Um, but also, you know, when we talk about guys getting called up for opening day, you know, we had this talk a couple of years ago with Chris Bryan, and it comes up every year. Uh, service time is a real issue with these guys. Uh, how long you're going to be able to hold off arbitration, how long you're going to be able to hold off uh, free agency, with Birdie being a reliever, I don't feel like that's as big a concern necessarily as it would be with some of these other guys, you know, your starting pitchers, your everyday position players. Uh, so if he really impresses this spring, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the White Sox, especially if they, 
you know, wheel and deal a little more. Closer Daniel Robertson has been in the news lately about trade rumors involving him uh, maybe going to the, the Nationals or any other team that needs bullpen help. Uh, you know, if they carve out another spot in their bullpen, given the way they're, we're not exactly expecting them to compete, you know, maybe they decide to throw Birdie in the, in the deep water, uh, see if he can swim. The one knock I would have against him now, uh, he had solid control at Louisville, kind of struggled with that at the higher levels last year. Uh, he walked 20 guys in 32 innings uh, between AA Birmingham and AAA Charlotte. Uh, so that's that's not exactly where you want it to be. You know, in the minors, uh, again, that was the end of a long season. I don't think the White Sox are overly concerned about it yet. If he can show that the the command and the control are fine, uh, you know, I would not be surprised to see them push him very quickly, uh, potentially with an opening day spot, uh, you know, with with the situation they're in. Uh, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying it's going to happen, uh, anything like that, but he's a guy I would kind of point to. He just He's in the right system in the right situation, the right type of player to make that kind of thing happen. I like it. I think it's a good call. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've discussed a lot on the podcast is just how quickly guys in bullpen roles can rise through the minor leagues, crack the major league level, thrive there. Cause like you said, it's just a different ball game than if you're worried about the arbitration requirements of a position player or somebody who is playing a, a much different role on a roster. Um, and you know, we've seen it for guys who have rocketed through the major, you know, through the minor leagues, rather the guy who really comes to mind for me always in that regard is Chris sale who spent like four minutes in the minors. And then all of a sudden was up at the major league level, because when you pitch at a high level at the, the prep ranks, Collegiately, and then you get into the minors, there are, for a handful of guys, there are only certain indicators that a major league organization needs to see before they know, all right, this guy's ready. And if a major league club feels like a reliever especially can contribute, especially now with the way that bullpens and pitching staffs are managed – Guys can make that climb pretty quickly. One guy that I'm really interested to keep an eye on in 2017, I'm not sure if he's going to make a major league opening day roster because he's a non-roster invitee to camp, but the Detroit Tigers have a relief prospect named Joe Jimenez, who last year rocketed through uh, a handful of stops in the minors. He started at double A Erie, made it up, uh, actually started at uh, class A advanced Lakeland, made the majority of his appearances at double A Erie, and then made the final stage of his 2016 season with triple A Toledo. Combined in those stops, 55 appearances, a 1.51 ERA, 78 strikeouts, and 53 and two-thirds. Now, I know that there are some people who are kind of off of the bandwagon with him just because the numbers maybe seem a little bit like they're inflated over what the stuff suggests he's capable of doing. But again, a system right now that is in some flux, the Tigers are in a division where it seems like they've missed their window. I mean, the Tigers had that mid to late two thousands window that looks like it closed uh, just because of the competitive level of that division right now, Joe Jimenez. And I know that the early indication is that he'll be at Toledo to start the year, but if that's a guy who goes out and just rockets through spring training, maybe he's in that conversation. And again, the same type of thing he's been tested in pressure situations. He made 30 saves out of 31 chances last year between those three stops for his minor league career, 52 of 57 in save opportunities. So he's had those high leverage chances to show off what he's got. Uh, I think people will probably knock him for a while, but he's shown 
really there isn't a lot left to prove except the consistency of being able to do it. Because when you do it for one season, yeah, that's great. And he had a breakout 2016, but oftentimes that's not quite enough to go on. Um, I think he could be in that conversation. Obviously the roster things are a little bit more complicated with someone in his situation, but uh, I think even if he doesn't end up on a major league roster to start the season, I think he'll be in Detroit in pretty short order. Yeah. And, and, like you said, in that situation, it's kind of interesting just because kind of the opposite from the White Sox in that I think the Tigers are the solid number two team right now in terms of that AL Central. I mean, it's the Indians, space bar, space bar, space bar, then the Tigers. But if the Tigers are hoping to get a couple breaks their way, they might need all hands on deck. Uh, you know, they might need their best arms up as quick as they can get them. Jimenez is definitely their best relief arm. Uh, he might be their best arm in the system flat, period. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if they try to squeeze as much as they can out of them if they are going to try to keep pace with the Indians uh, and bring them up. Just another point on Birdie. Uh, I, I like the point you did make. You brought up Chris Sale earlier. Uh, the White Sox do have a history of this kind of thing. I mean, Chris Sale was up very right. quickly after the, he got drafted. Carlos Rodon was up in his first full yeah, season. Yeah, he was the other one. Carson Fulmer. Last year, I mean, right. with middling success, and we still don't know what his role is going to be going forward, whether you know, they really want him to be a starter, but is he you know, a, a future reliever? That'll play itself out this year. But if there is a team that is going to bring up a college arm when they know he is ready in his first full season, it is the White Sox. And, uh, and, and with Birdie being who he is right now and being a reliever, uh, unlike some of those other guys, obviously Sale started as a reliever, moved to the starting role. Birdie is always going to be a reliever. Uh, that's just so many factors that I think kind of work to his advantage. Another guy to keep in mind there, by the way, um, you know, you mentioned uh, obviously Carson Fulmer. Uh, today's guest on the podcast, which we haven't even gotten a chance to tease yet, but Tyler Beatty will join us, uh, the top prospect in the San Francisco Giants organization, and yet another guy uh, who is one of the Vandy boys. And we talk so often, it seems like with guys who are at least in some way connected to Vanderbilt, even if they didn't go to Vanderbilt, we talked to Thomas Jones, who was committed to play there and up not going there for school another guy to keep an eye on because he's fallen off the radar a bit walker bueller who came out of the 2016 season as a sixth ranked prospect in the dodgers organization bueller had tommy john surgery in august of 2015 after he was selected 24th overall in that year's first round so last season combined he only made three appearances between the rookie level arizona league and the class a midwest league but healthy really good stuff uh mid to top rotation type stuff if he sticks as a starter maybe a guy who could head to the bullpen but another one that potentially could be a quick riser it all depends on his health obviously but another one to keep in mind and another Vanderbilt product who kind of follows that same mold yeah I, I don't think he quite fits that category of guy who's going to make the opening day roster right but... right no not at all but no but just to, to tie it into you know something that we've talked about a lot since the the turn of the year was the Jose de Leon trade and right you know why would they be willing to give him up in a deal you know to the Rays for for Logan Forsyth who you know is a solid second baseman but uh you know it, it given what we think the ceiling might be for de Leon that seems a little weird I know there are people out there who think De Leon was maybe the third best pitching prospect in that Dodger system uh, behind Yadier Alvarez and behind Walker Bueller. Um, so as much as we like to think De Leon was a premium prospect, they, they were pit, dealing from kind of a situation of strength there. Um, so yeah, Bueller kind of enters that equation and we'll get to see more about how that's going to play itself out in 2017. 
Strike two this week, Sam. The American League West is latest up in prospect projections for the 2017 season. Sam wrote that up. It is on the site at MILB.com right now. Uh, There are a couple of systems in that division that you don't think a lot about. The Angels, obviously, are an organization that is seemed somewhat rudderless for a little while. There are some risers now in the angel system. It's certainly not the wasteland that it was last year, two years ago. There are some guys right that right now in that system who could be guys in that system. An interesting name to suck out there. Alex Meyer. Uh, keep that in mind. Sam will touch on that, but the Seattle Mariners, some interesting prospects there. Jared, Apoto, we still haven't been traded as of yet, but it's always possible. Uh, the Texas Rangers, a system that has somewhat declined via trades and via graduations and that type of thing. Uh, but the Oakland Athletics have an interesting mix of guys. For a while now, I think we've been kind of waiting on when Franklin Barreto is finally going to break through. This year could be the year. But Jarrell Cotton uh, gets a lot of love in the steamer projections. Tell us about the AL West projections this year. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Cotton because he he was the the lead uh, guy in in this piece. Uh, I I got to talk to him, which was a really good and fun conversation uh, about you know what kind of happened last year. What what's always happened with him? Uh, he's always been a really good you know fastball changeup guy. He's five eleven, one ninety five. Was taken in the twentieth round of the twenty twelve draft by the Dodgers and just became. You know, try, kind of transformed himself into a strikeout. Uh, I, I, want, I don't want to say demon, but a strikeout king of sorts. Um, always averaging, you know, above a strikeout and inning everywhere he kind of went once he hit full season ball. Uh, and then this year he started out the year Triple A Oklahoma City, posted a 4.90 ERA, which didn't look all that great, but struck out 119 uh, with only 32 walks and 97 to third innings. Um, And the question with him has always been, okay, he's got these two pitches. He also has a cutter that's below average. He also has a curveball that he himself called loopy uh, that he's trying to work to tighten up. So he's got the four pitches that can kind of work in the minor leagues. uh, But with just being two pitches, being a guy who's 5'11", not exactly the tallest, you know, the big burliest guy out there, most dominating in terms of presence, uh, is he going to be looking at a a future in in relief? He gets traded to the A's in the deal that sends Rich Hill and Josh Reddick to the Dodgers. Uh, goes to AAA Nashville. The second he almost gets to Nashville, they start working. You know, the pitching coaches there, the the managers there, they start working with him. He he said what they focused on was the way he pitches out of the stretch. So his fastball and changeup, like I said, have always been really good. Lots of good movement on that changeup. Really deceptive. Uh, but when he was pitching out of the stretch, both the cutter and the curveball just became flat. And, you know, I didn't mention it before, but when he was at Oklahoma city, he gave up 17 home runs in those 97 and a third innings. Uh, and he said, you know, that's, that's not good by any measure. He gave up the most homers of his life. He said in 2016, uh, so what they tried to do is they tried to give him, you know, something to work with a little bit more rhythm, uh, try to you know, give a little bit more movement to that cutter and that curveball. He said it made, you know, a world of difference. He now has more confidence with those pitches uh, instead of just being a little bit predictable in terms of going with just the fastball and changeup. Uh, they can't sit on those two pitches anymore. They have to know other things are coming. He eventually did get five starts with the A's uh, and posted a 2.15 ERA there with 23 strikeouts and only four walks in 29 and third innings. Again, his kind of bugaboo was the home run. He gave up four 
in his five starts. Um, but he seems confident that that's going to kind of change. He said they were all solo bombs. So it, it, he's not exactly worried about that going forward. Uh, Steamer is a big believer in him. They projected him out to be worth 3.3 war, which is actually the most amount of war over 200 innings of any Oakland A's starter. That includes Sonny Gray, you know, a, an all-star pitcher in the past who had a, a rough 2016, uh, but a former ace. You know, that includes Kendall Graveman. That includes a couple other guys that, you know, that seem to be locked in. Sean Manea, you know, a friend of the podcast, had a pretty solid rookie year. Uh, Steamer thinks he's going to be even better next year. Uh, or Steamer thinks Cotton is going to be better than even Manaya next year. Uh, so you have to kind of look at it and see, okay, well, what what is it about this that seems to be working? Uh, I think the strikeouts help him a bunch. I think the fact that he did really well in the majors helped him a bunch. Uh, you know, strictly speaking, if you were to talk to anybody in the A's, they're going to say he's in the rotation conversation uh, based on these projections. And not every team is going to use these projections. They have their own systems, and they also have, obviously, their own scouts and coaches. Uh, but he should be in conversation for that number four spot. Uh, I would have him penciled in there. Uh, I, if he has even a decent spring, I think you could even pen him in there, given his new package of pitches, given what he's shown at the major league level. Uh, it's tough to send him down after a run like he had last year uh, after that call-up. Uh, he himself talked about, you know, he's still focusing on that cutter and, and curveball. He even said he talked to, Tom Gordon, who he's going to be compared to until probably he retires, you know, just a, a small pitcher, uh, you know, who has at times electric stuff. Um, but is that, you know, Tom Gordon was once a starter, became a reliever. Is that what Cotton is going to happen with Cotton? I don't think he thinks that. I don't think the A's think that. And the projection systems certainly don't think that. So he's going to be a really interesting one to watch right now before MLB.com kind of updates things. They have him at number 14. He's going to go much higher than that, I think, uh, when lists are updated later this offseason. But, uh, yeah, Jarrell Cotton, if if you're looking for a guy that maybe wasn't on your radar, uh, you know, entering the offseason, certainly entering the midpoint last year, uh, I would kind of circle him and keep an eye on him entering 2017. So you can go check out that story on the site right now, which leaves just one division before we are uh, all wrapped up with the prospect projections for 2017. That's the National League West, and that'll be coming up next week from Sam. Oh, one thing before we forget, because you, you did tease it, and I don't want to leave Angels fans hanging. Good. Uh, yeah, you did say. <laughs> I did, did, yeah. No, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, you said, like, Alex Meyer, and Sam, right. we'll talk about that in a bit, and, like, like we're going to completely ignore him. No, Alex Meyer is just an interesting case because – I used to think of him as kind of the the face of the Twins, you know, the of the pitching side of a really promising Twins staff. Uh, and, you know, he last year was just kind of a sweetener in a deal that just saw the Angels swap Ricky Nolasco and Hector Santiago. So he, his stock had really crashed because of control issues. Um, but, you know, he, he made five starts with the Angels last year, posted a 3.93 FIP. Average 10 strikeouts for nine innings in that short stint. Uh, and, you know, given the way the Angels are kind of situated right now, kind of like Cotton, you know, he could probably be in that. He's definitely going to be in that rotation discussion. Uh, he probably should be the, their number four or five starter, even with those control issues. It's it's kind of like Tyler Glass now uh, without as many strikeouts, I, I'd say, it, 
in terms of Myers' immediate profile. I think Glasnow has, you know, better control than Myers has ever shown, uh, you know, better pitches than Myers has ever shown. Uh, but they project him to have a 4.03 ERA, uh, 4.19 FIP, and 8.9 strikeouts for nine innings. Uh, so over 200 innings, that would translate to 2.2 war, which is very, you know, it, it is, is fairly solid. I mean, you get that out of a number four or five starter, you're going to be very happy. Uh, it's on him to prove that, you know, he can succeed in that role as he did in that short stint last year with L.A. Uh, but right now, I think things are looking up at, at a time when they were always looking down for Alex Meyer. Strike three this week, Sam. We bring in, uh, as I once referred to her and will still refer to her, our best buddy for the show before the show podcast, MILB.com's own Kelsey Hennigan joins the show to discuss a feature that she had up on the site this week. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Tyler. You know, my mom is a big fan of yours. I know it. called me a best buddy last because, night. Because. <laughs> shout out, Barb. It, <laughs> Hi, Kelsey's Tyler mom. mom just, or Tyler mom. Yeah, no, that's wow. it. I'm just going to leave that one there. Okay. I was going to say it's Tyler mom winning over the moms of America, but I think. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm everybody's uh, everybody's favorite big dork on the podcast. That's why I'm a big hit with the moms. They think I'm non-threatening. Um, so, Kelsey, tell us about this story. Really good feature up on the site uh, right now, which deals with two generational no-hitters. And I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah, so at first I was really interested with the fact that Kyle threw a no-hitter in the minors, almost Kyle Drabeck, almost exactly 20 years after Doug fell one out shy of a no-hitter in the majors. And I just thought that was really interesting. Then the more I talked to them and I talked to Christy Drabeck, Doug's wife and Kyle's mom, and I just realized there's more to their story about just their relationship and how Kyle has transitioned from being a player who had a, or a kid who had a major league dad to now being a player who has a kid. Yeah. And what what did you kind of learn about, because I know when you started writing this, it was just going to be like, isn't this kind of cool? Like there were two no hitters in the same family or one a near no hitter, one actual no hitter. Uh, and what kind of shared experience is that? But what did you kind of learn about what it's like to be a baseball family and trying to raise a family when you're on the road for six months a year? Yeah, it's tough. It sounds like it's tough on both ends, which isn't that much of a surprise. But I'm sure everyone thinks it's glamorous when you see a little kid on the field in his dad's jersey or he gets to be a bat boy during spring training. And it seems cool, but then you also have families that are separated for so many months. Uh, and so you could tell that both Doug was felt bad that he wasn't around as much. And then also Kyle missed that presence, though his mom kind of filled in and played catch with them and made sure to take them to games when they could. So it's definitely a struggle uh, on both ends. Kelsey, what kind of an impression did you get from Kyle as to how it affected his makeup as a ball player to know what it takes from his father's perspective? I mean, we hear so much about, you know, when guys have a, a brother that's been through the the professional ranks, now they can kind of bounce things off of a contemporary who's at that level. But when you're a, a kid and you're looking up experiencing that workload because of the way it affects your own life, I mean, how do you think that affected him when he got into pro ball on his own, knowing what his dad had been through? I think he saw exactly how much hard work work it took. I mean, everyone says, yeah, you got to work hard and follow your dreams. But I think to actually see his dad go to practice every day or work out or do whatever, what have you, I think that he saw how much it actually took and the sacrifices it took. But I think that just made him stronger and more prepared. 
Kyle Drabeck, by the way, last season made 15 appearances, 11 of those starts for the AAA Reno Aces in the Pacific Coast League and did also get one big league appearance with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He's currently a minor league free agent, uh, but the story is up on the site right now. It's a great one about the former first-round pick in 2006 of the Philadelphia Phillies organization, Kyle Drabeck, and his father, Doug. Uh, what else you got coming up? Do you know what, uh, what your next feature is going to be? This is like Kelsey and I have talked about this that this is one of our favorite times of year because we get to do the coolest stories uh, away from the field. I mean, stuff that we kind of get to pick out and research and write about on our own. What what are you ruminating for the next ones? I'm thinking about a couple. Um, you know, Mark Appel was injured most of last year, so he's forming another comeback into spring. So I was thinking about checking in on him. Also, um, Brady Aiken, you know, first overall pick twice. Hasn't really been in the spotlight since. Hasn't really played any big games aside from uh in the complex leagues so i'm pretty curious to see what he's doing and also how he's handled all these transitions in his life she is kelsey hennigan and by the way you can find kelsey on twitter she is at kelsey with an ie underscore hennigan and the story is up at milb.com right now and more to come as we get into pitchers and catchers reporting and on into spring training and heading towards opening day great stuff kelsey thanks thanks tyler That'll do it for three strikes on this week's edition of the show before the show podcast. And coming up, we head to the San Francisco Giants organization and the new top prospect in the Giants system, Tyler Beatty, whose uh, 2016 MLB pipeline photo showed him running the bases, but he's actually a pitcher and he joins the show to talk about that and a whole lot more next. Well, we are headed to the Cactus League in very short order for 2017 spring training, and a guy who will be down there before uh, any of the rest of us is the top prospect in the San Francisco Giants organization, Tyler Beatty, who is headed to spring training, coming up on Friday and uh, coming out of a very fun week as well. We'll talk about that in a second. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're great, man. You you prefaced this by saying that your voice may be a little bit off because as we just learned right before we jumped on, you were at the Super Bowl on Sunday and you're a Patriots fan. How was that? <laughs> it was incredible, man. It was, uh, you know, as my buddies were texting me from back home saying they were jealous that they weren't there, it was uh, just as great in person. But um, yeah, I wasn't doing much screaming aside from yelling. <laughs> Uh, in the first three quarters um, angrily but then the fourth quarter came and it was just absolutely nuts uh, just being surrounded by Patriots fans it was um, one of the best sporting experiences I've ever had and uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can get, you know, one of those types of experiences in a World Series coming up with San Francisco. Well, one of the things I got to just jump in real quick, because as being the lone non-Patriots fan on the, the podcast, uh, the, the lone <laughs> non-Massachusetts guy of this tripod that we have here for this segment. Um, I mean, I was thrilled for the first three quarters for you being there going to a super bowl and all of a sudden your team is down 25 in the third quarter like was there a time when you were like what what did i waste this money for like what was it like 28 to 3 what was going through your mind i wish i had the patriots mentality and i could tell you man i was believing the whole time but yeah you're right. i was like i was like feeling bad for my dad because he got us tickets and i was like man my dad was ready to bounce after the third quarter, and I was like, you know what? Let's just stick around. Yeah, I was. It was tough, man. I was like, dang, this is the this is the Super Bowl that we're paying to see. But then, you know, Tom Brady does what Tom Brady does, and he basically makes people hate him a little bit more, and Patriots fans love him even more. So, it was amazing. Yeah, well, just save that ticket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is true. You got to put that am, be an eternal scrapbook item. 
Pop pops is framing it as we speak, so we'll, we'll have that forever. There you go. Well, Tyler, let's talk about the offseason a little bit because heading into uh, to 2017, last year, 24 appearances for Richmond, really, really good season for you. And now this year, you're kind of on that doorstep of really big things. Since everything wrapped up in September, you're headed to Scottsdale on Friday. What have the last few months looked like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So just been getting ready for the season. I've been in Houston, Texas, uh, where my fiance is from for the whole offseason. Uh, working out at um, Fairchild Sports Performance, actually where Mark Melanson and Hunter Pence are working out. So just been able to kind of build a relationship with those guys over the last few months and, uh, you know, get my arm in throwing shape and ready to go. So just been throwing bullpens and really getting my body in shape um, for, for a long, uh, healthy season. Yeah, and at what point do you start throwing? I mean, everybody's kind of got their own program going in terms of when they kind of get geared up and, you, you know, you don't want to waste bullets, that kind of thing. But at what point do you start throwing in the off season and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, absolutely. So I try to take about two to three months off uh, every off season. If I'm afforded those, those two to three months and I start throwing December 10th or I did this year. And um, I, I just think it's a good time just to get the arm going. Uh, nothing too crazy at first, just getting out to 60 feet and, and really just kind of lobbing it, getting it there. And then from there, just gradually moving back and gradually building up that intent to where I got off a mound. I want to say, January 15th. So, um, you know, really just making sure that I'm not doing uh, anything too crazy, but that I'm also, uh, you know, ready, prepared and feeling strong for spring training when those, uh, you know, bullpens, live BPs and and then uh, live game action, uh, you know, comes around. Yeah. And before you mentioned, you know, working out with Melanson and Pence and, you know, getting to know some of the guys, obviously Melanson's a new guy in terms of the Giants, but you know, last year, I think you got, you know, an invite to, to spring training, a non-roster invite. You get another one this year. Uh, what are you expecting about this second time around that's going to be different? Or what? How, how did that last one last year kind of set you up uh, for this this time around? Yeah, I just think the more you're around those guys and the more you're around that environment, uh, the more comfortable you get. And I'm a guy who who thrives the more comfortable I am. And I think they, the Giants do a great job of making you feel at home making you feel welcome and making you feel part of the group as soon as you get there. So I don't think that was a huge adjustment last year, but I think going into the second big league camp, I'm able to to recognize a few more guys and just feel more comfortable being around them and um, not be a starstruck. I wouldn't say I walked in the room and it was, you know, jaw dropped to the floor, but it is an adjustment being around those types of guys and um, really understanding that they're pulling for you and they want to, uh, you know, help you out, give you advice wherever, um, you know, you may need it. So, I think this year, I really want to go in there and compete. I threw two innings last year, um, and I think I'll have a chance to throw some more this year. So I want to go out there and really just just be myself, go out there, have some fun, and uh, hopefully can contribute to some games in spring and then uh, have a chance of um, you know doing that during the season as well. Tyler was a 14th overall selection back in 2014, and uh, since then, some AZL time in 2014, Salem-Kaiser in 2014, 2015, two levels, Class A advanced and Double A. and what I want to hear from you, Tyler, is the way 2016 stacked up in Double A versus that first taste of it in 2015. You go out uh, two seasons ago and make 13 starts for the Richmond Flying Squirrels, an ERA of 5.23. Take the lessons from that, apply them last year, ERA drops to 2.81, a fantastic season for you. What was the biggest thing that you think you learned in that first tour through the Eastern League that you were able to apply last year and really turn it into such a breakout season? I was really you know, a completely different guy from 2015 to 2016. I think just in terms of body um, and where I was at mentally, you know, I put on 30 pounds from the 2015 offseason going into the 2016 season just because going through that season in Richmond 
at the end, I just wasn't as strong as I needed to be. And my stuff wasn't where it needed to be, where I was just, um, uh, I wasn't hanging in games as long as I needed to. So, um, you know, the biggest difference was, for me was my body and, um, you know, my arm strength. I was throwing a lot harder. I got my stuff back to the level it was at in college and also had taken the, the things that I had, um, you know, worked on in 2015, adding a sinker, adding a cutter, and really that put, putting that into my game uh, to kind of make it more well, more well-rounded and, and to throw more strikes and compete, knowing that my stuff is good enough to get those guys out, really going with the mentality that, um, you know, I'm going to challenge those hitters, very talented hitters in double-A, but, uh, you know, go up against, you know, my stuff against their bat. And um, I think that was the big difference for me being able to stay strong and keep that weight on for a whole you know, 24 starts, uh, whatever it was, pitching, you know, with, you know, throwing even harder at the end of the year than I did the beginning. So um, it was a, it was a good off season to, to build a great foundation that allowed me to stay strong and healthy for that full season last year. Tyler, one of the guys I want to ask you about, um, just while we're on the subject of being in Richmond, is Christian Arroyo, who was the top prospect in the Giants system coming out of last year. You guys have since flopped. You're one, and he's two for the pipeline rankings coming into 2017, which I know you guys don't pay attention to, but nerds like us do. Uh, but Christian Arroyo <laughs> starts last year at 20 years old um, in the Eastern League and goes out, puts together a really, really good season. He turned 21 back in May, but he bats 274, 316, 373, plays three positions defensively, um, a guy that I know the the people on the player development side with the Giants are really, really impressed with just how his instincts are and the way that he plays the game and that it in no way befits somebody of, you know, since his time in the system, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. What was it like being around somebody who is that young but that advanced and getting a chance to watch him on a nightly basis? It was it was amazing, and it's it's fun to have him play behind me and uh, and pick me up on multiple plays. And he's a guy who has high makeup. He's a, he's a great guy, um, and he's a hardworking kid too. And and you you see young guys, um, oftentimes really just go through the motions and um, you know not necessarily understand what it takes to get to that next level. Just from being in college, watching a guy like Dansby Swanson, you see the um, the reps that he puts in pregame. Uh, I compare him a lot to Arroyo just because of the way he works pregame, the way he works you know during the week. And during uh, practices, you see that he really cares about, you know, becoming better, becoming a better fielder, becoming a better hitter. And um, he's always watching tape. He's always trying to analyze his swing and also try to get better watching other guys' swings as well. And I got the chance to be locker mates with him the whole last year. And um, that's just the way he's built. You know, he, he wants to be a great player and he wants to be a contributor up there in San Francisco and understand what's it, what, what it takes. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been, been able to play with him for the last two and a half years, you know, in parts of three seasons. So um, I know he's, he's already made tremendous strides from, from the few years that I played with him and he's only getting better. Uh, you know, the more he, uh, you know, gets older and the more reps he's taken. So uh, it's, it's a bright future for him for sure. And I'm looking forward to playing with him for a long time. All right, I, I kind of want to jump back a couple of years in terms of you know your professional baseball story, uh, going bo- even far back as 2011. Uh, Tyler mentioned you know you were taken with the 14th overall pick in t- 2014 by the Giants, but in 2011 uh, you were taken 21st overall by the Blue Jays uh, out of Lawrence Academy in Groton, Mass. Uh, you're actually the second guy we've talked to, Phil Bickford being the other one who you know was drafted by the Blue Jays, ended up signing with the Giants in the first round. Uh, what was that like going through that that process in, in 2011, and why did you end up deciding to go to Vandy instead of going pro that early? Yeah, it was both a very incredible experience and very humbling experience. Really, 
um, you know, proud moment, realizing a dream coming true, getting drafted in the first round. It was something that uh, I'll never forget, just the moment itself, being around my friends and family and really celebrating it, but humbling at the same time, really getting a new taste of what the business side of baseball was all about. And um, you, you don't really get exposed to it from, you know, draft meetings or sitting down with scouts. They tell you bits and pieces of it, but when you're thrown into the fire and you really get to see what it's all about, you have a new appreciation um, for really what players, uh, you know, kind of deal with throughout, you know, contract negotiations throughout a draft process. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be offered, uh, you know, a high amount of money. But, you know, for me, what was tough and what, what was tough for people to, to understand from my perspective is how much I valued Vanderbilt how much I valued the education, the coaching staff, and the experience that I would gain from playing in the SEC for, for three to four years. And, um, you know, I think looking back at it, it's easy to say, you know, I really want to go to Vandy, win a national championship, and I think I'd be drafted in the first round again. Um, that's the way it worked out, luckily and thankfully, because of the big man upstairs. But I think just the adversity that I was able to go through um, and all the experiences I had is, is really priceless. Um, but the decision itself, it was, it was a very hard decision. It wasn't something that I just kind of blew off and said, you know, that's, that's definitely not, and you know, something that interests me. <clears throat> Playing professional baseball has always been a dream of mine. And um, when the Blue Jays made that offer to me, it was very difficult. But at the same time, I, I knew um, deep down in my heart, you know, how much I wanted to stick with that Vanderbilt decision and how much I valued it. And uh, looking back at it, knowing Tim Corbin was on that other side of the decision to go to Vandy, um, it, it was the best thing that I've ever done in my life. And, uh, you know, it was it was tough, but I thank um, you know Vanderbilt every day for that opportunity, and it was an incredible three years. Yeah, and we've talked to a couple of you know Vandy boys on the podcast. We had Matt Bushman, we had Dansby on before. Uh, everybody talks about you know the kind of development and how how important it was to, to be there. I want to kind of go a different route with with you, just because this has always kind of struck me, and I've never got a chance to ask anybody about this. You know, we mentioned you're a mass guy. Uh, Mike Yastrzemski, you know, he was a mass guy. Kevin Zomick is a mass guy. Adam Ravenel is a, a Massachusetts guy. What is it about that pipeline? I mean, there's no like natural connection there. Did they just do a really good job of scouting the Bay State or something? What what it led you to Vanderbilt and so many guys from Massachusetts there at the same time? Right. So, like I was saying, the big appeal is Tim Corbin. I mean, he's a guy originally from New Hampshire. Um, I want to say Wolfboro, New Hampshire. Um, who who is always up in that area and just enjoys uh, being around those New England athletes because he finds a very valuable asset in a guy who hasn't been burnt out from baseball, burnt out from throwing too many innings, like a guy from you know a warmer weather state may be, just because he's throwing all year round. And w whereas we didn't have the uh, opportunity to do that with the snow and cold weather, things like that. So he really enjoyed the aspect of a, of a guy from New England who played multiple sports but also wasn't burnt out. And he also would always talk about the toughness of a guy from Massachusetts um, th that brought to the table, just because we always felt uh, like we had a chip on our shoulder to prove like we were, um, you know, good enough to compete against those Cali, those Cali boys, Georgia boys, Florida, Texas uh, guys from those States um, because Massachusetts guys never really got enough credit. And so he was always willing to bring those guys to the sec. And uh, I think just from an early stage, you know, guys are always interested in going to a warmer, a warmer state to play baseball, especially in the SEC. And Corb's always did a great job of, of selling what that university brings to the table, both educationally and, and both athletically. So, um, you know, Corb's is uh, one of the biggest reasons why guys uh, go to Vanderbilt. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty obvious through the years. Tyler, I got a chance to watch a video on, uh, on the old YouTube in which you 
were hanging out in a hall on campus and asking fellow Vandy students just how much they knew about the Vanderbilt baseball program, um, several of whom you asked if they knew who Tyler Beattie was, and they said some variation of the name sounds familiar or no while you were standing right next to them. But one girl you asked, would you turn down $2.5 million to come to Vanderbilt, which you, of course, did, as we covered a minute ago, and she said yes. Do you believe that girl? (laughs) (laughs) A couple couple people said yes, and I was um... (laughs) – I guess I, I guess I was hoping people would say yes, but I really didn't think so. Um, so yeah, I did. I I don't know. I guess I did believe her, and um, I think that's what you get when you go to Vanderbilt. You start to understand that if you got a degree from Vanderbilt, I guess potentially you could make you know that kind of money down the road. And uh, I'm no, I'm no mechanical engineer, but there are some smart smart students at Vanderbilt, and uh, I'm sure they were like you know, thinking well beyond that amount of money that they would make in their life. So, you know, I'm, I wish all the best to those people, but I was happy that they agreed with me. And that was one of the funniest, funniest videos that I had made. I don't know how it turned out that good, but um, too, too funny for sure. It's pretty great. And it's up. You can find it on YouTube. And also in that video, I wanted to ask you about your music career. Cause you asked a handful of people if they had ever heard any music by young Beta. what's, what's <laughs> been going on uh, with the rap career. Yeah, absolutely. So I hadn't, uh, you know, released any songs up until about a month ago. I released my first song off of uh, a new album that I'm releasing here in the next couple of weeks uh, called The Change Up. And um, I released it's called the top, it's called Top of the World. It's uh, there's a song on Spotify and on SoundCloud. If you just search, you know, Young Beta or Tyler Beatty, Top of the World. And uh, yeah, I'm releasing an EP in a couple of weeks um, that'll, that'll feature five songs um, that I made uh, in the last year. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, nothing too crazy, but something I'm certainly passionate about that, you know, I just feel like, uh, you know, people may be, uh, you know, encouraging to encourage to hear uh, some positive songs about, you know, where, uh, you know, my life is at my faith um, and really, uh, you know, how much I love baseball and how much I love my family and friends and stuff like that. So really just a positive outlook on my music and uh, really just trying to put my voice into uh, some unique rhymes. Tyler, one more thing on the Vandy topic. Um, and we've asked this, you know, to basically every Vandy guy that we've talked to, uh, on the show, but it's always cool for us to get the perspective of what it is like for you guys to watch your classmates and team, former teammates, uh, from the program there. I mean, you obviously won a, a college world series in 2014. You get to watch all these guys go off now and do big things. And when you see, you know, the Carson Fulmers and the Dansby Swanson's breaking into the big leagues, the success that you've had, the success that Walker Bueller has had coming back from an injury. What is that like now? Because for those of us on the outside of it, it's very neat to see a program that generates talent like that and these massive classes of top prospects that come in. But you guys get to be on the inside. I mean, you remember what it's like riding buses and going on flights and, you know, wearing your team polos together, traveling around the SEC. What is that like now as you're kind of entering the the dawn of your professional careers? Yeah, it's, it's really it's really awesome. It's a testament to Vandy and how well they prepared us for this level. And, um, you know, I think I've been surprised with, you know, how quickly I've developed, obviously, thanks to the Giants development staff. But to watch guys like Fulmer and Dansby, and the list does go on, even a guy like Tyler Ferguson, who, uh, you know, came out of the draft and wasn't uh, taken as highly as we thought he would have been taken early on uh, in his sophomore year. Um, those guys developed so quickly, and it's because of the things that they learned at Vanderbilt. And whether it be a guy like Fulmer, who had a ton of success, or a guy like, you know, even myself or Ferguson, who ran into some adversity and really had to learn through those uh, those ups and downs, um, you know, coming to pro ball and really coming to their own and, and really find a good rhythm. 
um, and even uh, guys like Swanson who are in the big leagues really soon, um, they're representing the school well, they're representing themselves well and their family well and that organization well. And that's, that's just a testament to Vanderbilt, to Coach Corbin and the things, the life lessons, um, the character traits that we learned going through college and um, the way that these guys are able to implement it as soon as they get into Pro Bowl is very impressive. And uh, I think it's just one of the more appealing things and reasons to go to Vanderbilt because of the success that you can have right when you get into Pro Bowl. It's uh, not a long process for some of these kids like Fulmer and uh, Swanson, but you can tell going to three years, four years at Vandy really helps pay off in the back end. All right, we'll we'll pivot to 2017 and leave you off on this one. Uh, you know, you're probably, you know, like you said, you're coming in to compete this spring. Uh, I, not just a new face around around spring training. You're going to be one of the more familiar faces there in the second spring. You're probably headed to AAA in the Pacific Coast League. If you were to kind of hound on one thing you're going to be kind of working on this year uh, to make that next step, to potentially debut with the Giants at some point this summer, uh, what are you kind of honed in on to, to make that happen? Yeah, just staying consistent and really just being myself. I think the, the more simple I am, the things are simplified out there on the mound, the better I am. Um, for me, it's all about competing in the zone and uh, not worrying about missing missing bats, but just missing barrels, whether it be getting ground ball outs, being efficient, pitching deep into a game. Um, that's where I think any starting pitcher can help an organization. They want to have their starting pitchers, all five, boost around, uh, you know, a thousand innings for the team. And, you know, if I'm a guy who can stay healthy for a whole season, pitch 200 innings and help contribute to a team, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, most beneficial and um, going to help contribute to any organization. And so, um, you know, for me, I just want to go out there and establish my fastball and be a guy who can, uh, you know, pitch deep into a ball game and put our team in a position to win and trust that, that bullpen at the back end with Derek Law, Strickland, and obviously the newly acquired Mark Melanson uh, and let them do their thing at the back end. Sacramento and San Francisco, the next steps ahead in the career of Tyler Beatty, who joins us on this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. And Tyler, congratulations on all the success so far, and best of luck in 2017. And uh, enjoy the trip down to Scottsdale and, you know, getting a chance to know that you were the best Super Bowl comeback of all time. Nice work. <laughs> I appreciate it, Sam, and thank you, Tyler. I appreciate you guys, and uh, thank you for having me on. On the heels of Tyler Beatty, one of the uh, Vandy boys who is uh, rocking things at the minor league level, we transition to the business of baseball and our good pal Benjamin Hill. There was a, There's going to be a topic of conversation in this week's edition of our discussion with Ben in which we talk about Bob Ross. I thought about bringing the segment in with my best Bob Ross voice, but I wouldn't be able to do it justice, so never mind. Hi, Ben. Hi, I can't do it justice either, and Nobody I'm not going to try either. And this is going to be a podcast. It's on Hulu like, now, by the way. <laughs> Wait, I think Sam has no, no, a I'm dissenting just... view. I think he, he just told me he's going to do his Sam's Bob Ross. No, you just have to think of happy little trees the whole time, or happy little clouds. Just happy little anything. That's all. No, but it's, there's like a there's a there's a thing that goes. It gives me, it gives a lot of us very distinct ASMR sensations. <laughs> uh, but I I can't do it. I can't do it. I just need to listen to it. But apparently, Which, it gives me an idea right now. Can a minor league team please do an ASMR theme night? <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> and would you just have somebody speaking in very soothing tones over the PA system? Now batting, <laughs> I can't even do it right. It has to be a little husky. But for those who don't know, ASMR do 
is how would you qualify ASMR? Uh, it's it's talking in gentle, soothing tones as a form of relaxation. Sorta. It stands for uh, the the full acronym is autonomous sensory meridian response. But basically, you start feeling like a tingling sensation when you hear like a soothing voice or a sound or something like that. People who whisper, they're actually if you go on YouTube, yeah, there's all sorts ASMR, of ASMR. There's all people have made like an industry out of it. Yeah, Bob Plus, yeah. that dude was onto it before anybody knew. Yeah, he was an ASMR uh, predecessor. He 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 uh, knew that that was going to be a thing before the internet. Before uh... he was the original ASMR hipster. Yeah, <laughs> he really was. Why are we're we gonna, talking about Bob Ross? We're going to talk about Bob Ross. Uh, oh, in, well, you know, why don't we just talk about it now? So. According to one Benjamin Hill at bensbiz.mlblogs.com, this will start us off in our conversation with Ben this week. The Daytona Tortugas unveiling their promo schedule this week. And uh, perhaps the most fascinating element on that schedule is a Bob Ross bobblehead, which the Tortugas will be giving away. Uh, He is a Daytona Beach native. And, of course, the show The Joy of Painting, which at least Ben and I are old enough. I don't know about Sam, but old enough to remember when it was actually on TV, like with new episodes. Um, and, but Bob Ross, you know, you can't look at Bob Ross and not smile or get happy. What this? I can't imagine there have been many, like, painter-themed bobbleheads. Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, although uh, if I got – Closer to the middle or the bottom of my head, I could probably think of a few. But Bob Ross uh, is a was born in Daytona Beach and lived in that area. Um, you know, he grew up in that area and 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 has a you know lifelong Florida roots. Uh, he passed away in the mid '90s, unfortunately. And the Daytona Tortugas, who have never given away a bobblehead in their franchise history, somehow um, are breaking that streak and. Uh, giving away a Bob Ross bobblehead is the first bobblehead in franchise history. And uh, they're also celebrating Guy Harvey during the season. Um, and he, Guy Harvey is going to come to the ballpark and they're going to wear Guy Harvey themed jerseys. And I know the Pensacola Blue Wahoos did that last year. And uh, this is how I learn about art these days through what minor league teams are doing. Guy Harvey, uh, I guess he does a lot of aquatic theme painting. So he makes sense for some of these Florida teams. Uh, very vivid. That man is Guy Harvey, very vivid artist. And just so we're clear, we don't know what the Bob Ross bobblehead is going to look like yet. They haven't announced anything, right? No, they've not announced an image. So uh, I wrote about it on the blog, but did not have an image to use. And uh, one of the reasons I focused the Daytona Tortugas on the blog is in addition to the Bob Ross bobblehead, they announced their entire promo schedule via a parody of We Didn't Start the Fire. And um, I just thought that was hilarious because I loved that song as a kid and uh, it's kind of ambitious and wildly stupid to create a parody of We Didn't Start the Fire, just naming your theme nights and days of the week promos and uh, extolling the virtues of the value of your minor league franchise. So I love it. So the Bob Ross bobblehead, uh, which is one of the more unique ones on the minor league calendar for 2017, is coming July 15th, the first ever bobblehead in Daytona Tortugas franchise history. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I am very interested to see what exactly that looks like because so often we see the the picture of Bob Ross and it's him. I mean, the hair obviously is going to be a part of it, but is he going to have an easel? He's going to be painting something in the bobblehead. Like I'm really intrigued by this one. You know, There's so many different ways you could go. Yeah. You know, what would be really cool if they, if he has the easel, but it's blank. Oh, like, you're the one who's supposed to thing. paint a Bob Ross painting on the bobblehead. You Sam. I, I just like it. Out free ideas. I like it. It's pretty good. 
pretty good stuff. I would not be one uh, to paint it. I would just have to throw the bobblehead away because I have zero artistic talent. So uh, I do as well. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, Daytona making a splash for the 2017 season. A lot of teams did that in 2016, and Ben is working on a story right now of some of the teams that shattered their own records in attendance in 2016 and maybe some ideas as to how and why that happened. It's a really interesting cross-section of teams basically at every level uh, and every type of market in the minor leagues. Tell us about this story, Ben. Well, the specific qualifier I used, first of all, this story was inspired by the number tamer, um, a man by Dave, by the name of David Kronheim, uh, C-R-O-N-H-E-I-M. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. I have spoken to him in the past, but it's been a few years. But David does a website called The Number Tamer, and every year he releases attendance reports for major and minor league baseball that are extremely well done and extremely uh, thorough. So uh, he just finished his minor league report for the 2016 season. That's at numbertamer.com, and it's available as a PDF for free. And you, and he's very uh, free with the information he has. As long as you credit him, you can use that information for your own edification and promotional purposes. Um, so I was looking through the Number Tamer's report, and he had this interesting tidbit that there were 10 minor league cities or teams who set attendance records in 2016, uh, not just for the current franchise, but in the entire history of that city's uh, minor league baseball history. And uh, the 10 teams are Asheville, Biloxi, Columbia, Fort Wayne, Visalia, Tennessee, South Bend, Charleston, Johnson City, and Pulaski. So uh, Tyler, as you said, definitely an interesting cross-section of teams. Uh, Columbia, that's the Columbia Fireflies. They um, you know, opened a new ballpark this year. Not a big surprise that uh, they set an all-time attendance record in the city of Columbia. Biloxi, same thing. This was the first year where they played a full season in their ballpark, and Biloxi hadn't had a minor league team since the 20s. So teams like that are not very much a surprise. But then when you kind of get into why are the Charleston River Dogs setting attendance records in the year 2016? Why are the Johnson City Cardinals setting attendance records in the year 2016? Why Visalia? Um, I kind of found it interesting. I reached out to all the teams and got responses from nine of them. And I'm not going to say which team uh, did not respond. That would be unprofessional. But I incorporate as much as I can uh, the team's own responses, obviously, into why they are – having as much success now as they've had in the past and a lot of factors do go into play and i think it's something that people enjoy looking at and analyzing and above all getting in touch with me telling me which teams i neglected because they didn't quite read the parameters of the article correctly so so which of these teams kind of had the most unique reason do you think for for why their uh you know attendance spiked so well uh, in 2016 it's a good question I think Asheville's unique in that the tourist name goes back over 100 years. McCormick Field, you know, has been massively renovated through the years, but that dates back over 90 years. Um, so they're not a new entity. And Brian DeWine, the team president, said, um, you know, we put all – we increased our marketing budget and we – dedicate it to educating fans. They know about the brand. They know about us, but educating fans as much as possible about when we are actually playing. So he said a big part of their success right now is increasing that marketing budget and doing like four second IDs on TV. Those like really quick commercials, um, having digital billboards saying when there's a game and just amping up those efforts because everyone might know who you are, but you know, the casual fan might not really be paying attention. So I thought that was kind of an interesting one that they're setting franchise records in an old ballpark in the year 2017 or 2016. 
And uh, I think, you know, demographics sometimes have something to do with that. That was the case in Charleston, I think, where, uh, you know, the, the tourism base of that city is huge. And you also have uh, people, you know, moving there to actually live there. Uh, a lot of transplants have uh, moved to that area. And there's Boeing and there's Volvo and there's businesses such as that uh, that, uh, you know, employ people in the area. There's military bases. So I could go on and on in each just like any aspect of minor league baseball, so many different factors. But I thought it was kind of interesting, this cross-section of teams and ballparks of all shapes and sizes and ages um, you know, are all experiencing attendance records for very different reasons. That story is coming to the site, and it brings us uh, from a, a promotion to teams that are capitalizing on promotions and such to yet another promotion. And for 2017, the Reading Fightin' Phils have put themselves uh, on the map for August 7th which will be their 16th annual morning game. It'll be played at 9.35 a.m., and the Fightin' Phils will be taking the field that day as the Redding Whoopies, and they'll be taking on the Akron Rubber Ducks. Um, now, don't get this confused with the former minor league hockey team, the Macon Whoopies in Macon, Georgia. This is actually about the dessert, the Whoopie. The uh, the whoopie pie, right, is what it's known as. I don't think I've ever had a whoopie pie, but it's, it's a Pennsylvania thing. It's like chocolate and then cream and then chocolate. It's like a cake, but it's another uh, another food themed minor league identity coming forth. Yeah, that's what it is, and that's what we keep seeing. You know, I think started with the Fresno tacos, the Lehigh Valley cheese steaks. We had uh, what did we have the Scranton Wilkesbury uh, pierogies last year, and uh, the Staten Island cannolis. We're going to see more and more teams do this. Dedicate one night of the promo schedule to a theme jersey celebrating a local cuisine. And Reading, you know, PA Dutch country, they have the whoopies and um, separate logo jersey. Uh, obviously, they'll have plenty of whoopie pie on hands. And uh, yeah, it really is. It's just like. It's like an ice cream sandwich, but just whipped cream, heavy cream in the middle, and uh, kind of like cakes on either end. I like to think of it as like a cake version of an Oreo. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's true, but a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. And and one, uh, you know, I'm one of the few individuals out there who read the press releases and try to glean details as opposed to just a tweet where like, that's awesome. That's why I love minor league baseball, and that's why I'll never <laughs> think about this again. I, <laughs> I try to, you know, see what the teams have really, how they saw, thought this through. And I like that the uh, the, the Reading, well, on this day, they'll be the Reading Whoopies, the Fighting Phils on any other day. They're giving away uh, seat cushions as part of this game because that way they can be giving away. They're the Whoopies and they're giving away seat cushions. So they're Whoopie, cu- whoopie Cushions. You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's a... That's a uh, they're not actual Whoopie Cushions. They're actually seat cushions. Yeah, they but they're the Whoopies. They're giving away cushions. You have the... The uh, the connection there to a uh, a time honored uh, gag flatulence prank device. Well, I don't even know what you, <laughs> how you categorize it. I used to have them all the time. I'm a uh, big fan of Whoopi cushions, um, and I'm a big fan of the Reading Phillies Fighting Phils morning game, which has been a long tradition for the team. And um, you know they they really do it to um, to give you know senior citizens as well as night shift workers and anyone else whose general scheduled is not amenable to um, you know, to typical game times, they have a 9.35 a.m. game. And it's not a school day. It's not tons of kids screaming about SpongeBob SquarePants. This is more of a kind of uh, let's get the seniors and uh, the working class of um, the people who, who, who work shifts that, that really don't align with baseball. And uh, having an annual promo for that I think is a cool idea. And now they're really blowing it out with this whole whoopee thing. 
Two notes. There's a really great logo that Redding designed for this, uh, which is a, quote, joyful whoopie pie mascot. Um, he's wearing a red Fightin' Phil's hat with the old school R logo, and he's also carrying a flag that states the word whoopie on it, as the uh, press release said. Secondly, another interesting note in this press release, quote, for the special morning game, all fans that enter the stadium before 8 a.m. will receive a free hot dog and coffee. Which seems like a strange combination. That is a little strange. <laughs> I'm not even going to defend that one, but I think it's just combining morning and baseball. You know, yeah, I, mean, I guess. What do you think of so. in the morning? I think of coffee. What do you think yeah, about baseball? I don't think hot dogs at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I don't. Man, I don't know how it would go with the coffee. I don't know. Although, whatever. Although we'll have somebody you know, write in and tell us. Why? Why can't you have a hot dog in the morning? You could. You know. Is it a sandwich? Though? That's why. Is it a sandwich in the morning? Nope. I'm not getting into this nope. conversation. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz. And the blog is bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Check out the story on team attendance. I know a whole lot of minor league front offices uh, around the game will be doing the same and wondering how they can capture that same magic for 2017 and beyond. I'm looking forward to it, Ben. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. You will. Big thanks to the top prospect in the San Francisco Giants organization, Tyler Beatty. He is number 88 on MLB.com's pre-2017 top 100. And his uh, young teammate, Christian Arroyo, by the way, is number 89. So they are the new 1-2. And it was Arroyo who was at the head of the organization coming out of 2016. But Beatty takes over as the top prospect in the Giants system. And a big thanks to him for joining us on the show today. We have some breaking-ish news. Although... By the time you hear this, it'll be a day after we recorded, so not really. Uh, but we wanted to give you our thoughts on this from one Jeff Passan at Yahoo Sports. Quote, Major League Baseball plans on testing a rule change in the lowest levels of the minor leagues this season that automatically would place a runner on second base at the start of extra innings, a distinct break from the game's orthodoxy that nonetheless has wide-ranging support at the highest levels of the league. Sources familiar with the plan told Yahoo Sports. A derivation of the rule has been used in international baseball for nearly a decade and will be implemented in the World Baseball Classic this spring. MLB's desire to test it in the rookie-level Gulf Coast League and Arizona League this summer as part of an effort to understand its wide in-game consequences and whether its implementation at higher levels and even the major leagues may be warranted. This is a rule that came about for the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the last time that baseball was in the Olympics, in which the IOC basically said, we want these games shorter. And baseball's governing body back then, the International Baseball Federation, came up with this tiebreaker rule. Now, I believe its original implementation was runners at first and second. This rule, according to this report from Yahoo, would just be a runner at second base to start extra innings. Uh, but it is something that has been used in international baseball since. Uh, I know it's used in certain international leagues. I know the Australian Baseball League has used this to break ties, I believe, from the 11th inning on in games down there. Um, and it's something that's still used by the now international governing body of baseball. The the uh, forerunner to that was the International Baseball Federation, now called the World Baseball Softball Confederation. It's used for extra inning games in that organizations competitions uh i did the broadcast for the under 23 world cup back in september and it was used there and it gets a little dicey because you can have games that 
go to extra innings at 0-0 and 1-1, and all of a sudden they end up as 6-5 games because when you start in those cases, runners at first and second, nobody out, all of a sudden things can get nuts. Um, This, I'll give you my initial gut check reaction I love this idea for the minor leagues. I don't think it'll ever be implemented at the major leagues. I don't think it should be implemented at the major leagues. But at the minor league level, guys are playing to get better. The competition in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter the way that it does at the major league level. So if you have something that's going to bring about games being closed in 12 innings rather than in 18 innings, and you're avoiding the prospect of injuries at that stage, you're avoiding fatigue for guys who are already going to be extremely fatigued with the schedules of minor league baseball teams. um, I'm all for it at the minor league level. Also, I once had to broadcast a 23 inning game solo a year after broadcasting a 20 <laughs> inning game is the second game of a day night double header solo. So I did 29 innings in one day at that point. So I'm all for it just from the radio guys perspective. Yeah. So it but, all comes down to you. Tom. Yeah, basically That's- it all comes back to me as it should. Uh, but no, I mean, we were kind of talking about this before we started recording this segment in the interest of keeping the games shorter, not risking the injuries and being able to cut something out of an already exhausting schedule for these guys. In the minor leagues, I'm totally fine with this. At the major league level, I don't think it'll be implemented. I don't think it should be implemented. But this is fine with me at the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of enter it with an open mind. Um, I I think so much talk now in sports is about how do you handle extra time, extra innings, overtime, whatever. We're all trying to be finicky with it. I, I don't think baseball has an issue with this. It seems like a weird thing to be, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, baseball is a long game and should they be implementing pitch clocks and they should be cutting down commercial breaks and yada, yada, yada. And that's fine. And, you know, I, I agree, you know, you want to keep people paying attention. I don't think extra innings are necessarily the problem there. I mean, listen again, open mind. We'll see what happens in the the GCL and the AZL. If this actually goes through, Uh, that's what Joe Torrey said, you know, talking to Yahoo sports just said, let's see what it looks like. You know, we're going to try it out of the GCL, AZL. Very few people are paying attention there anyways. Nobody's going to open up an AZL box score and say this is fraudulent because the guy scored from second base on the first hit of the 10th inning. That It's all fine. We'll see. You know, maybe it'll win me over. I just, if the goal here is to get it to the major leagues to cut down game time, this seems like a a weird way of going about it and kind of an unnecessary way of going about it. If... All it is is to keep, you know, minor leaguers from staying until one o'clock in the morning and then having to take a bus to to Fort Wayne, you know, at three in the morning. Fine. Good. Like, let's just keep it at that. And that's perfectly okay. Uh, It's when we start to think about stretching it out and uh, pushing it as as high as it can go that I kind of cringe a little bit. But, you know, the, the GCL, the AZL. I'm sure we'll see this probably in the AFL because the AFL is the ultimate kind of experimental league yeah. in terms of Major League Baseball wanting to see things put into practice. Uh, I'm sure we'll see that happen, you know, come the fall, and we'll have to see how it kind of evens out. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a story, you know, when the pitch clocks first went in about whether it cut down game time over nine inning games, and I think that's always the barometer we're using here, or the denominator. It's that it has to be for a nine inning game because that's what we can control. We can't control, you know, if somebody plays a 23 inning game, that's going to make the game seem longer on average because you're including 
23 innings amongst nine innings. Um, so it, it depends on the data they're looking at. If I don't know. I, I have some follow-up questions on this. Uh, but, you know, it's the GCL, it's the AZL. It, it, uh, not a lot of people are paying attention there. You know, we have to. It's our job. Uh, I'm sure we'll do some follow-up stories on this over the summer, uh, specifically for draft picks who are getting in, thrown into pro ball and then all of a sudden have this new rule they have to deal with. How are they going to kind of handle that? But, uh, yeah, this the 2017 season, I think, just got a new little wrinkle that we weren't expecting. There is a quote that uh, baseball Twitter kind of freaked out about when this story was posted uh, to Yahoo Sports, and it is from Joe Torre, who is now Major League Baseball's chief baseball officer and a strong supporter of this idea, this concept, this rule being uh, tested out in the AZL and the GCL. Quote, let's see what it looks like. It's not fun to watch when you go through your whole pitching staff and wind up bringing a utility infielder to pitch, which I think almost everybody would disagree with because I th- <laughs> that's one of the most entertaining things. It's not fun if you're like it's not fun manager. if you're a manager. <laughs> no, but like I definitely remember where I was the day I covered Bill Hall pitching a game, the Red Sox, <laughs> and him telling Jason Veritek, "Hey man, I have a curveball," and Jason Veritek walking away and saying, "I'm putting down one finger and one finger only." <laughs> Like that stuff is fun. Like let let's let's not uh, spin it to be. Oh, it's not fun for the fans. It is fun for the fans, but it's not fun for teams that invest millions of dollars in their pitchers only to see them lose a game on a guy who hasn't pitched since the seventh grade. It's going to be interesting. So keep an eye glued to milb.com for more on that and uh, all kinds of stuff as we get set for the final run up to pitchers and catchers reporting next week and spring training games opening in less than two weeks. I can't wait. Sam's already picking out dates for when he is going to head to Florida. Josh Jackson and I will be in Arizona uh, as it looks right now, probably the second week in March. And uh, that's, it's my favorite time of the year. Spring training. I cannot get enough of spring training. I'm so excited. Yeah. And let's kind of get out of ahead of this a little bit. If you're going to be down in Florida or Arizona in the middle of March, you know, let us know. We'd, We'd love to see you. Love to chat. Love to talk prospects with you. Anything else, you know, love to talk the podcast. Uh, we don't have shirts like Ben does, so we can't promise you We're not anything cool special yet. like that. And we will be eating our own food, so keep your filthy paws off of them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like it, it'll, it's always fun to to meet people out at the park. And and if you're there, uh, we'll we'll release our schedules once we have everything planned. And uh, if you're there at the time, let us know, and we'll try to meet up. Do it. Get in touch with us. Podcast at MILB.com is the email address. Sam is on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B, and I am at Tyler Mon. Uh, once again, a big thanks to Tyler Beatty and a big thanks to Benjamin Hill. And uh, until next week, we get to talk about some actual on-field baseball news. Uh, enjoy the debate over tiebreaker rules and extra innings in the low minors, and we'll talk to you in seven days.